Yes, Father, that is what we want, glory to go to Jesus who was born like us and who is King. So God, I pray you would glorify your Son through the preaching of the Word about Him. And I pray you would glorify your Son in the thoughts that all of us have about Him as we listen to what you have said. God, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, would be pleasing in your sight, would be received by you as acceptable worship. God, we offer it to you all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, please open your Bibles to Luke 2. Luke 2. Where else? The first scene of Luke 2 describes the birth of Christ. It's a familiar passage for many. So before we read this passage, uh, let me pass along good encouragement I found from our spiritual forefather, J.C. Ryle. He said this, we have in these verses the announcement of the most marvelous event that ever happened in this world, the incarnation and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a scripture passage which we should always read with mingled wonder, love, and praise. This is one of those passages that when we walk through it, we should take off our shoes sensing that we are on holy ground. We are not reading about anything close to common, but about something so wonderful. So with that in mind, look with me at verse 1, Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, the really remarkable thing about those verses is that there is nothing all that remarkable about them. The extraordinary thing about Christ's birth was the extraordinarily humble conditions uh, in which he was born. And the circumstances of his birth were of a lower dignity than even ordinary human birth. N not at home, not in a hospital, no room in the inn, no guest room available. He was born in the place where animals were kept. Then not put in a, a special cradle, not even a normal cradle, not, not even an old junkie cradle, in a feeding trough, laid in a manger, no special robe or covering, just normal old swaddling cloths, humble, 
lowly birth. But then, it's as if heaven could not contain himself, witnessing the lowly birth of this baby boy. And heaven had to proclaim to someone the good news of what just happened. And heaven had to sing. And so right after the quiet, modest birth of Christ, there was an eruption of glory. That's what we will see in today's scripture. After humble Mary lays her firstborn son in a humble manger, we encounter glory, glory, glory. First, we'll see God's shining glory. And then we hear angels singing glory. And finally, we find shepherds giving glory. Earth joins heaven in praise over the newborn king. And this passage then presses us to do the same, to join the angels of heaven in giving glory to God for the birth of Jesus. So look at verse 8. We'll dig in. First, seeing God's shining glory. God's shining glory. Verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear, and you would have been too. The glory of the Lord is said here to shine. It's a visible manifestation of God's presence that was bright shining light. How, how bright might it have been? Well, Revelation 21 says the whole new Jerusalem won't need a sun to shine on it because the glory of the Lord gives it light. And this word in verse 9 translated shown around is, is used just one other time in the New Testament. That's in Acts 26 when the Apostle Paul describes his encounter with Christ on the Damascus road. He says, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone around me. And, and that too was the light of God's glory. Then in which the risen Christ appeared to Paul and called him to be his apostle. So when Jesus was born on earth and when Jesus appeared on earth to his last apostle, Paul, the beginning and end of his in-person earthly ministry were both accompanied by Dramatic appearances of the shining around glory of God. Terrifying. Wonderful. Well, well, what does that tell you about who this man really was? Let, let me help you understand the terror the shepherds felt here even further. The glory of the Lord. In the Old Testament, Exodus 24, when Israel gathered before Mount Sinai... The Bible says the glory of the Lord dwelt on top of the mountain and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. But, but then in Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord fills the finished tabernacle. And even Moses is not able to enter because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then again in 1 Kings 8, after Solomon finished the temple to replace the tabernacle, when the priests came out of the holy place, 
The cloud filled the house of the Lord, and the priests could not stand to minister in it. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And again, when Paul encountered the light of God's glory, he fell to the ground as if dead, and he was blinded by its brightness, and he could not eat or drink for three days. So you understand then why the shepherds were filled with great fear. The glory of the Lord shone, not just before them, not just immediately before them, but shone around them. The Bible says that whole mountains melt like wax before the presence of the Lord. And here were these shepherds, enveloped by the light of His glory, at something like the Apostle Paul was three decades later. And of all the people that the Lord could have chosen to shine around when Christ was born, the the glory of the Lord shone not around priests offering sacrifices in the temple, but in the country, around shepherds keeping watch over their fields. Men of no renown. The opposite, actually. Shepherds were a rather despised class of people in those days. They were notoriously dishonest, like perhaps the unfortunate reputation that used car salesmen uh, have today. Shepherds would take and say, no, that's my sheep. You're wrong. And probably one reason these shepherds were up keeping watch over their flocks by night was not just to protect their sheep from predators, but from other shepherds, maybe from one another. Dishonesty among shepherds was so common that, according to Jewish custom, the testimony of shepherds was not accepted in Jewish court. Shepherds couldn't be counted as credible witnesses And shepherds were also looked down upon, especially by religiously-minded Jews, because their occupation meant they they perpetually lived in an unclean state, according to the ceremonial law and the Jewish customs of the day. So, So they could not come into the supposed presence of God in the temple in Jerusalem. But when Christ was born, the presence of God came to them and shone around them. And enveloped them. They were in it. Of everyone God could have chosen. Shepherds. There were all kinds of people in and around Bethlehem that night. Heaven announced the good news to no one. Except these shepherds. Don't you know. God was making a point by that. When his son came to the world. He was coming for the unclean, for those who were far from righteousness and knew it, for the lowly, as Mary celebrated in chapter 1, for for those of humble estate. He was coming to claim them as his people and make them fit for God's glorious presence by the work of his Son. We have an incredibly gracious God God calls us to be like Him in this way. In the church, Romans twelve sixteen says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Anytime you're tempted not to, think about the glory of the Lord finding and surrounding shepherds. Now, this hillside scene on Christmas night, that should deeply encourage you 
uh, especially you who are deeply aware of your own sins, of your own lowliness. Now, this scene should also, on the other hand, challenge you. Uh, Maybe open your mind to consider ministry opportunities that maybe you have dismissed by by being too high-minded in a bad way. Associate with the lowly like our God does and showed on Christmas night. When Christ was born, God's glory surrounded the kinds of people who, who were generally forbidden from entering His presence, being unclean, or uh, we might think would be struck down in His presence for being dishonest, like Ananias and Sapphira were in Acts 5, for their lying. But on this occasion, on Christmas morning, that's not the point of Christmas, that's not the goal of the Son coming, His first advent. God's glory surrounded the unclean, the sinful commoners, and an angel of the Lord addressed them out of the light. In verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Shepherds, don't be afraid. God is not here to strike you down. God is here to make you excessively happy. The degree to which you now feel afraid is the degree to which God intends to make you rejoice. Verse 9, they were filled with great fear. Verse 10, I bring you good news of great joy. Don't don't just tremble, rejoice. I bring news from God, really good news, glad tidings, a, a gospel. That's the word used here, euangelizo, the word from which we get evangelize. I'm here to evangelize, to announce a gospel of great joy. And in verse 11, the angel explains this news of joy was about a brand new baby. Look at 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's, that, that's it. That's the good news of great joy. It's a newborn today in David's city. Now, there were multiple newborns or close to newborns in Bethlehem that night, I'm sure. All of them good news for some people. But this one baby in Bethlehem was born for the great joy of all the people. Verse 10, the angel said. And that makes sense when we think about verse 11, what he said that this little newborn held three glorious titles, Savior, Christ, Lord. To call the baby Savior names him as a rescuer, a deliverer, a redeemer. One, one who will rescue people from danger and misery and suffering and all that leads to it. And we know from Scripture that ultimately it's our own sin against God that poses the greatest danger to us and that, that leads to the greatest misery for us now and, and in, in eternity, potentially. Uh, maybe you remember in the Old Testament, in the period of the Judges, God would often raise up for Israel a deliverer in the, in the Greek Old Testament named a Savior. God would raise up for them 
Uh, And this deliverer or savior would rescue God's people from their enemies who oppressed them. But they couldn't rescue God's people from the root cause that kept leading them to being conquered. Their sin against God. So the people just wound up back under God's judgment, conquered by their enemies again a few years later. The, The salvation that those saviors accomplished, it didn't last because it didn't go deep enough. But this Bethlehem newborn was the Savior we needed because God said He would save His people from their sins. And so from from all of God's judgments. And, And so eventually from all misery and all suffering, the salvation this baby boy would accomplish was going to last forever and and would be a salvation to the uttermost, Hebrews says. Savior, Savior. Savior is the sweetest word in the world for people who feel the misery of their own sins or just the misery of sin in the world generally. The world's brokenness is the sweetest word in the world for those who understand the consequences that that sin has if we're not rescued. And Christians should feel that. And at some level, all Christians do. And so, Christian, you should rejoice. A Savior was born. Christ was born to save. The one born that day in the city of David was a Savior. He was also Christ. The second title the angel gave to the boy, Christ. Christ means anointed one. The Hebrew word for Christ or anointed one is Messiah. He's Messiah. Now, in the Old Testament, there were three special offices who were anointed. They would have oil poured on them, usually representing how God would pour out His Holy Spirit on them to empower them for this special service associated with one of these offices. And the three anointed offices were prophet, priest, and king. So when the angel called the newborn baby in Bethlehem Christ, that indicates the boy would be anointed by the Holy Spirit to be God's ultimate and final prophet, priest, and king. He he would be the ultimate prophet we needed to call us back to God and, and to teach us how to know and enjoy God. And he would be the ultimate priest we needed to atone for our sins, to cover them by a great sacrifice. And he would be the ultimate king that we needed to protect us and provide for us and to win peace for us. And what else do you need kings to do for you? To ward off anything that might threaten our ultimate good and to crush our great enemy. And the title Christ really more than anything especially refers to his office as king in Scripture, how it's developed. Uh, the, the final great king, God promised, who would be born in the line of David and ascend to a throne at God's right hand. In the Gospel of Luke, we've seen some of this, has already uh, said a lot to prepare us to, to hear this word Christ be spoken about this baby and, and to be uh, crowned on him. Christ. Chapter 1, we were told Mary and Joseph were of the house of David. An angel told Mary her son would rule forever on the throne of David. Zechariah prophesied God has raised up salvation for us in the house of 
David. And then earlier in chapter 2, uh, we were told Joseph took Mary to the city of David because he was of the house and lineage of David. And then in our passage here, verse 11, the angel says, uh, we have good news of a baby born in the city of David. I mean, the house of David, the lineage of David, the throne of David, the city of David. We can't miss it. David, 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 David. This baby is the promised Davidic king. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one promised to David who would reign forever. Now, I don't doubt this is also part of why shepherds were chosen this night to hear the good news about Christ's birth because shepherd became an important term in the prophecies about this promised king who would come, about the Christ in coming in David's line. And that should make sense to you because when the prophet Samuel found David to anoint him as God's chosen king, where was he? What was David doing? He was keeping watch over his father's flocks in a field near Bethlehem. A humble shepherd whom God raised up to shepherd his people Israel as king. And the prophecy of Micah that Matt read earlier about the Messiah, the ruler God would bring from Bethlehem, David's city, God said, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of of the name of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure. And so, so heaven first sent word to a group of shepherds outside Bethlehem to tell them the Christ has come, the king who God said would be the great shepherd of his people. Now, there's not, there's not many discouragements and troubles that, that you could be experiencing that would not be uh, just deeply ministered to by meditating on the fact that Christ is our King and Shepherd. If you think about what it could possibly be like to live under the rule of the greatest King imaginable, a self-giving, humble Shepherd who shepherds His people in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord, well, what difference would that make for you knowing that? Well, that is what we have in Jesus Christ, is what God has given us in His Son. We couldn't have a better King to shepherd us in the strength of the Lord, to shepherd us in the majesty of the name of the Lord. And He can do that because His name is also, properly, Lord. He's not just Savior. He's not just Christ. He is the Lord. That's the third title the angel proclaimed about this newborn baby. He's not just God's chosen king, he's God incarnate. Wow, this, this is the deepest mystery and the, the highest miracle. God entered the human race he had made. Born in the city of David, the Lord. It's amazing, except uh, it's not in the sense that amazing's not a word good enough. I, I can't find one. Just think about what we've heard about the Lord, even earlier in this passage. Before this baby was called the Lord, the Lord was said to do some other things, wasn't he? Verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds. And now the angel identifies this baby by the same title. So the newborn crying pitifully in the manger 
is the same Lord whose glory lit up the hillside and terrified the shepherds. Verse 9 said, it was an angel of the Lord who addressed the shepherds in splendor. And now we hear this baby was that Lord. So, so the fragile newborn in Bethlehem was the one who owned all those angels and gave them their commands. The king of angels condescended himself to become for a little while a little lower than the angels like us. So he could be for us a savior. And in Christ and Lord, Lord with us, our Emmanuel. Now look at, look at verse 12. The angel said next, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now previously, the angel said where the sh- uh, told the shepherds where they will find this newborn, the city of David. Now the angel tells them how they can identify him. I mean, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, that won't distinguish him all that much. There were pro- there's probably more than one baby swaddled up in Bethlehem that night. But only one would be lying in a dirty manger. Look for the kid in the manger. That's the Lord. That's your sign. A sign for you. For you. That continues the very personal nature of this message from beginning to end. Have you caught this? It's all for you. Verse 10, I bring to you good news. Verse 11, for you is born today. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. For you, to you, for you. You, you, you. It's like the prophecy of Isaiah 9, and it might be an intentional echo of the prophecy of Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born, for us a son is given. What a gracious God. You should hear loud and clear in in these very personal addresses, God's heart of generous, self-giving love. God gave to you His only begotten Son. Scripture says He is a Savior for you, for you the Christ. For you a prophet, for you a priest, for you a king, for you the Lord of all made low. The proper response then to this angelic announcement is to receive him as yours. That was God's intention in giving him. Take him as he offers himself to you in the gospel as your Savior, prophet, priest, king, Lord, and then rejoice with great joy that is uh, unexplainable and full of glory. Take your cue from the angel. Heaven said great joy is the right response. An overwhelming joy that wells up in you until... Uh, The high praises of God are in your throat, like one of the Psalms says, and and His praise comes out of your mouth. That's what happens next in the passage. In verse 13, after seeing God's shining glory, now we hear angels singing glory. 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, 
and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The heavenly host, that would be heaven's armies of angels. The Greek word translated host here is the word for army. Uh, It sounds like the word for soldiers, the bands of heavenly soldiers. Remember what Christ called them in the Garden of Gethsemane? Legions of angels. On this occasion, legions of angels filled the sky outside Bethlehem. Not to make war, but to worship. Not with swords drawn, but hands lifted in praise. Glory to God. And the armies of heaven were sent down to proclaim peace on earth for the birth of Christ, for for the incarnation of the Son. God deserves glory in every square inch of the universe. The angels said so. Glory to God in the highest, that is in the highest heaven, and on earth. Let heaven and nature sing, all of it, sing glory. And what prompted it? When heaven saw how low God the Son had gone, they sang Glory in the highest. The the Son went low to be born not just as a man, but like the lowest servant among men in a manger. Now, the world doesn't see things this way, but heaven knows what is truly glorious. And you need to have your mind renewed by this to think like heaven does about what is truly glorious. What is the highest glory? What would make heaven sing glory in the highest? Humility. Love that condescends. Willing servanthood. Free grace. Seeing the king of angels as a fragile little infant in a manger born as a savior for undeserving sinners, that was a display of God's glory that far exceeded any previous display of God's glory that had come before in the world. Uh, From the perspective of heaven, Christ born in Bethlehem, laying in a manger, was a stunning display of the matchless worth of who God is. Adjust your picture of who God is accordingly. As Hebrews 1.6 put it, heaven saw him in a manger. When God brings his firstborn in the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And they did. Well, this moment of praise, verses 13 and 14, it captured the highest goal of the incarnation which was glory, glory to God, glory to God. There was no higher good that God could work for. There was no higher happiness God could give us than to show forth His glory in the highest for men and angels to see and to celebrate. That's the end here, that the salvation, uh, the end of the salvation this baby in Bethlehem came to accomplish. It was to save us from our sin, but He didn't come to save us from our sin to nothing, from our sin to an enjoyment of God and His glory, 
reconciled to him instead of separated from him. The Savior's death on a cross erased our enmity with God and exchanged it for peace with God, peace, so that God might bring us close and share with us his own joy in his own glory. It's beautiful. And the angelic praise perfectly put, put these things together in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, peace with men on earth. These things go together. The peace Jesus came to give us was for the glory of God and for our enjoyment of the glory of God. And the, the end of peace with God is glory to God. And, and there can be no peace on earth where God is not glorified. There cannot be peace within any person except in a heart that glorifies God. In a soul that perceives and praises His glory. These fit together. His glory, our peace. His glory, our, our joy. Glory in the highest is good news of great joy for us. A lot of times, uh, peace problems and joy problems are actually glory problems. And Romans 1 fleshes that out some. God's glory and our joy, our peace, come together in the meaning of, of Christmas. These are the, the twin themes of, of heaven's proclamation about Christ's birth. And we should have known that Heaven would praise God for bringing peace to earth at Christmas. Remember again Isaiah 9, the great prophecy about uh, the birth of the Savior. For us a child is born, and his name shall be called Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, and of peace. There will be no end. The prophecy of Micah 5 that Matt read, the king coming from Bethlehem. He shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and he shall be their peace. God working for his glory and working for our peace is the same mission of God. The gift of peace is it's all bound up with the gift of Jesus. The peace with God that we get in Jesus. That, that opens up for us every other kind of peace that we could possibly enjoy. Peace with fellow man, especially in his body. Peace with everything in creation one day. Uh, the lion will lay down with the lamb. There shall be nothing that will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. A peace with, within ourselves that can be experienced even in the most difficult trials, even in the valley of the shadow of death, all of this in Christ because he himself is our peace. The prophet said that would be the case. So no wonder then when he came, heaven said, peace on earth, it came. It's there among men. Now one other thing to note in this Christmas worship of the heavenly host at the end of verse 14, who are the recipients of this heavenly peace? Those with whom God is pleased. Uh, some translations have it, peace to those on whom God's favor 
rests. Your translation might say something even different. It's a hard phrase to translate. So we'll have to get just uh, a little a little nerdy to understand this, but but we'll bring it back to the surface. So hang with me, okay? All right, the the word in the original language at the end of the verse, it, it just means good pleasure or goodwill or favor. Christ's coming would bring peace to people of God's good pleasure or people of God's goodwill. And the same word helpfully, I think, for understanding. It's used in Ephesians chapter 1 when it says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose, it's the same word, according to the good pleasure of His will. And this word is used in Luke 10, 21, the only other time it's used in Luke, but, but in very much the same kind of a theme we hear in the angel's Christmas song. Luke 10, 21, Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, talking about revealing himself, and you have revealed them to little children, to the lowly. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's the same word. Such was the Father's good pleasure. Okay, let's put these pieces together. The idea in the angels' praise is that God sent Christ to make peace with men, to give peace to men in accordance with His own good pleasure. Just, just on the basis of His own good will, of His free and sovereign grace, God sent His Son to make peace, not because of anything that He saw man do that made Him favorably inclined toward them. He sent His Son 100% out of His own goodwill, out of His own good pleasure in giving mercy. And Jesus used, used a similar word uh, in Luke 12 when He said, Fear not, little flock, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom unconstrained. You don't have to twist God's arm to give you the kingdom. It's His good, will, good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And the gift of Christmas proves it. This is God's heart of goodwill toward man. Peace to those whom God is pleased to call to Himself in free grace. And very often, who is it? It's people like these shepherds. God's choice to reveal His Son to these shepherds, again, it shows God's gracious will to reveal Christ to those who are like little children, Jesus said, to the lowly, to the overlooked, the despised, those who know they're not righteous and need repentance. He is pleased to put his favor on the humble, the humble estate, those who will have humble hearts, the poor in spirit, and, and then to reveal Christ in them and show them Christ is for you, a Savior for you, Lord for you. Finally, last point now. After seeing God's shining glory and hearing angels singing glory, in the end of the passage we find shepherds giving glory. The last point, shepherds giving glory. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, 
The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So the shepherds leave their flocks behind, exposed to predators and thieves, much like the fishermen who later left their nets and their boats and their fathers in the boats when they were called to go to Christ. And the shepherds hurry. Let's go see what God has revealed. They went with haste and they found the baby just as the Lord had made known to them, lying in a manger. Look at what they did when they arrived. Verse 17. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So they explained why they showed up. All of a sudden, strangers though they were, at the manger side, out of breath, eyes wide open with wonder, they made it known. They were following the angels as uh, the, the new heralds of heaven of the good news of Christ's birth. Hark, the herald shepherds proclaimed the Savior was born. Verse 15, this is a purposeful connection. Verse 15, the Lord has made known this thing to us by the angels. Verse 17, the shepherds made known the saying that had been told them. So the joy over the Savior, birthed in heaven, was planted in the shepherds. So they testified just like heaven had before them. The shepherds became the first witnesses of Christ after his birth. So God chose as his first witnesses. People who were not allowed to be witnesses in Jewish courts because of their bad reputations of dishonesty. God put his message of good news about his son in their mouths before any others. In the mouths of people who would, would be less likely to be believed than other people of higher rank and more credibility. God loves to use the weak to shame the strong, to use the foolish things to shame the wise. God's gracious will is not only to reveal His Son to the lowly, but also through the lowly. He gets glory both ways. And this also causes angels to look down from heaven and say, glory to God. Look at what God can do. Look at the kind of people He's working through. What grace, what power, glory in the highest. Part of God's plan to save and exalt the humble is to send out his gospel in ways that only the humble will accept. For example, very often, he chooses as his witnesses and teachers and counselors, not those who would teach or counsel him, but would teach and counsel others on behalf of him, he, he very often chooses people who are just not very impressive personally. People the world lo look down on and, and are not inclined to listen to just based on who they are in and of themselves. So those who are too proud to learn from the lowly probably won't hear the gospel very often or very clearly because God speaks through ones like shepherds. I've, I've met a lot of, lot of preachers. Preachers are some of the strangest people 
on the planet. Other preachers. <laughs> now Calvin, listen to how Calvin drew this lesson from the shepherds making known the gospel about Christ's birth. He wrote, Though God had at his command many honorable and distinguished witnesses, he passed by them and chose shepherds, persons of humble rank, and of no account among men. If we then desire to come to Christ, let us not be ashamed to follow those whom the Lord, in order to cast down the pride of the world, has taken from among the dung of the cattle to be our instructors and our evangelists. And we should add on the flip side, let, let us not shrink back from sharing Christ with others. When, when we sense our own insignificance in the eyes of others, if, if you sense when you're talking to someone, yeah, that this person is just not that impressed with me, doesn't esteem me very highly, don't let that cause you to draw back from, from sharing Christ. God takes a special pleasure in revealing himself, not just to, but through those of humble estate and of, of no accord. Now, look at how the people received the testimony of the shepherds. Verse 18. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So, uh, verse 18, what the shepherds say, was, it was astonishing to everyone. No one could deny that. All who heard wondered, but Mary, now this wasn't new for Mary. Mary had had nine months to slowly ponder a lot of really amazing truths that she had already known about her son, revealed through an angel, revealed through the prophecy of her relative Elizabeth, and now God is sending more for her to, to treasure up and ponder through these shepherds. And I feel certain that God included verse 19 here in Scripture, at least in part, to commend to us Mary's example. Just like the Spirit did before in chapter 1, we saw last week. She treasured up these things. She pondered them in her heart. I want to suggest to you that that is the path to great joy over the good news of Christ and His birth. A joy that is sustained. That that's the path to, a, to an unexplainable peace in Christ that is sustained. It's not just a flash in the pan, joy and peace. Right? The first time you hear the gospel, at least the first time you hear it with supernaturally opened ears, where you think, whoa, I really need this, and this is all sufficient for me. Well, the, the first time the good news of grace lands on a broken heart of repentance, a heart that's been opened by God's grace. Well, joy and peace will always be the result. Like the shepherds who heard this out of nowhere, and they hurried to see the, the Christ child, so eager to tell what they just learned. But for those who have known for a while, like Mary, she had already heard her son called Lord nine months earlier. She had already heard that her son was the Christ nine months earlier. Her joy and peace in Christ was sustained by what she did in verse 19, treasuring up the truth about him in her heart, pondering it in her heart. You need to set your mind on these things and 
Let your thoughts linger there. Ponder. Meditate on God's work in Christ. Day and night, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And God's Spirit will work through that to stoke great joy in Him and to stoke a a desire to praise His glory and a desire to live for His glory and a desire to speak of Him to others. So, if you have been a Christian for more than just a few days, I want to encourage you to especially uh, take as a point of application to spend time treasuring up the truths of Christ and pondering them in your heart. Turn them around slowly like a diamond, seeing how the, the light of God's truth hits every surface. And make that a habit, something you continue to do for all your days. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Now, verse 20, here's the last verse of the passage. And here especially is where we find the shepherds, uh, in a sense, marching with heaven's angel armies, giving glory. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Same words as before, verses 13 and 14. The heavenly host was praising God, saying, glory. Verse 20, the shepherds returned praising and glorifying God. Same worship for the same marvelous work of God. This in verse 20 is just a continuation on earth of the same celebration that began in heaven. The shepherds joined heaven's praise. Men on earth joined the angels of heaven in giving glory. And now you have all seen for yourselves what I said you would see at the beginning. This thread of glory that runs through the passage and ties it all together. That right after Christ's humble birth, there's a sudden appearance of divine glory in a field. And there a host of angels sing glory to God. And then soon shepherds who who heard that glory song, they, they repeat the sounding joy. And they echo back to heaven, glory to God, just as soon as they saw the newborn babe for themselves. That inspired the praise of heaven. And this passage calls you to join them in giving praise to God. And you say, well, pastor, that's a very simple application. And I would say, beloved flock, then do it. (laughs) The good news of Christmas calls you to join the angels of heaven and join the shepherds of Bethlehem and join humble Mary in giving glory to God. It's not right for us to make up points of Scripture that seem more novel. Give glory to God unto us. A son is given. A Christ, Lord. Glory to God in the highest.